X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Monday, June 7th. Today, back in the day, on June 7, 1892, Homer Adolph Plessy was arrested for violating Louisiana's Separate Car Act. The act, which separated railroad passengers by race, was broken in an organized fashion by the local Comité des Citoyens, the Citizens Committee, as a means of pushing to overturn the laws of segregation in the South at the time. The Comité dedicated years to spreading anti-segregation rhetoric within their The Crusader newspaper while raising money and planning the event. They even went so far as to raise the funds to hire the specific guard to arrest Plessy, guaranteeing he would be charged correctly in their effort to challenge an unjust law. The arrest laid the groundwork for the heartbreaking decision in the case of Plessy v. Ferguson nearly four years later. And today, back in the day, on June 7, 1965, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the plaintiff in the case of Griswold v. Connecticut, legalizing the use of contraception by married couples. The case struck down Connecticut's state law against contraceptives by a vote of 7-2. to two. The decision was based largely upon an implication in the U.S. Constitution that protected marital privacy as a fundamental right. Using specific implications from the First, Third, Fourth, and Fifth Amendments, judges reasoned that earlier cases, including Meyer v. Nebraska and Pierce v. Society of Sisters, which protected the constitutional right to parental control over child-rearing, were adequate proof that the Constitution protected certain private rights despite not specifically mentioning them. Later, Supreme Court cases that extended the influential principles of Griswold v. Connecticut included Eisenstadt v. Baird, Right to Birth Control for Unmarried Couples, 1972, Roe v. Wade, Right to Abortion for Any Woman, 1973, and Carey v. Popular Services International, Right to Contraception for Juveniles at Least 16 Years of Age, 1977. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with urban historian and founder of Slabtown Tours, Tanya March. X-Ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Oregonians may be faced with the decision to remove prostitution from its criminal statutes next year. Though a bill that would have done just this was proposed in the Oregon legislature, it failed to move out of committee. Now the sex worker advocacy group that originally proposed the bill believes a quicker path towards decriminalization could come directly from Oregonians. Advocates for decriminalization point to decades of research, which shows that criminalization makes sex workers less safe. And last Thursday, more than a dozen speakers shared their thoughts at a press conference held by the newly formed Oregon Sex Workers Committee. Support came from professors, state representatives, and sex workers who shared their past and at times painful experiences in hopes of eliciting sympathy and understanding. 
A State University of New York sociology professor, Dr. Angela Jones, explained, the stigma of criminalizing sex work contributes to, quote, violence, poor health outcomes, and banking and housing discrimination. What's more, these outcomes consistently bear an adverse effect on the most marginal communities involved. The newly formed Oregon Sex Workers Committee believes strongly in this movement and found that 68% of Oregonians support decriminalizing prostitution statewide. The committee plans to continue moving forward with work on a 2022 ballot initiative. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. As of Saturday, 22,772 vaccine doses were added to the state immunization registry. To date, 2,274,139 Oregonians have received at least one dose. And the seven-day running average for the vaccination of Oregonians stands at 16,749 doses per day. Additionally, it looks like Oregonians may soon be free to hang their face masks up for good. Governor Kate Brown announced Friday that once the state reaches 70% of its adults vaccinated with at least one dose, things will be changing. This includes lifting capacity limits on restaurants, gyms, stadiums, and other businesses. Physical distance requirements statewide would also be terminated. And mask requirements for vaccinated and unvaccinated people will conclude in most public settings. Oregon Health Authority Director Patrick Allen says the state may reach that 70% threshold as soon as June 21st, the first official day of summer. Its worst-case scenario for the latest possible date is June 30th. Next steps and architectural renderings have been released for two new libraries in the Oak Lodge and Gladstone areas. The former site of the Concord School will house the new Oak Lodge Library, Community Center, and Park, while the new Gladstone Library will be developed at the old Gladstone City Hall. The decision to introduce these new libraries was reached in 2017, now, years later, construction is finally slated to begin in 2022. Clackamas County is overseeing the build and operation of both new facilities, and community task force have been hard at work for both projects throughout the pandemic, ensuring both communities' needs are being met. These plans are expected to contribute to be refined over the coming months, but come winter, the county will apply for permits to build the favorite designs. To keep up to date with the latest on these projects, visit clackamas.us backslash community project. The Oregon Senate passed a bill that will allow college students to receive compensation. Senate Bill 5 will give student-athletes the right to sign contracts to compensate them for the use of personal information through endorsement deals and appearance fees. This includes information such as their name, image, and likeness. The bill will also give student-athletes the right to hire sports agents to protect themselves during negotiations. Athletes' compensation can come in the form of food, lodging, insurance, medical care, and, of course, money. As Senator James Manning of Eugene explained, it's time for student-athletes to receive a slice of the billion-dollar industry that college sports has become. He continued, explaining that this is also an issue of economic fairness. This is because many of the students that the NCAA has been profiting off of come from low-income households. 
The bill passed the Senate on a 23-6 to 6 vote, making Oregon the ninth state to pass this kind of legislation. And now heads to the House floor where it will receive a vote this week. On Saturday night, a minor earthquake struck near Mount Hood. Despite being relatively low impact, it was the first earthquake to trigger Oregon's new Shake Alert system. The Shake Alert system is intended to give Oregonians a momentary warning ahead of an earthquake's shock waves impact. The goal? To give people a few extra moments to get under a table or take other protective measures. This is possible to do because an earthquake's vibrations move through the earth more slowly than radio signals travel over wireless networks. But don't fret if you didn't receive an alert. Saturday's quake only measured a magnitude of 3.9, which is too small to trigger those emergency alert systems. Nonetheless, those behind the shake alert technology were pleased to see it function as designed. Saturday's earthquake hit just outside of Government Camp, Oregon, but people reported feeling it as far away as Beaverton. No damage was reported. And finally, some good news. Two apple varieties that were previously thought to be extinct have been identified in Oregon. These apples are called the K and the Carlo varieties, and neither had been identified in over 100 years. They were found by an organization called the Lost Apple Project, which works to locate apple varieties deemed extinct. The K was located in a small unincorporated town in northeast Oregon called Flora, on an orchard with just two trees. And the Carlo was found just west of Salem. Part of the Lost Apple Project's goal is to ensure these apples are never lost again. And fortunately, with these latest findings, two new trees of each variety will be planted at the Temperate Orchard Conservancy right here in Oregon. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. May 30th marked the anniversary of the 1948 Vanport Flood. In just a day, Oregon's second largest city was wiped off the map and 18,000 people were left homeless. But the history of Vanport is more than just a flood. It's a history of public housing, wartime, and systemic racism. The Vanport Place Marking Project hopes to bring that story to life. Here to tell us more is urban historian and founder of Slaptown Tours, Tanya March. The history of Vanport is more than just a flood. It's a history of public housing, wartime, and systemic racism. The Vanport Place Marking Project hopes to bring that story to life. Here to tell us more is urban historian and founder of Slaptown Tours, Tanya March. Tanya, good morning. Good morning. Can you give us some background on Vanport? What was the city like? Who lived there? So I got asked to help out on the Vanport placemaking project because my experience and my dissertation was actually written about another defense-era housing project built in 1942. So when I lived in New York and I did my master's work at Columbia University on New Deal-era public housing, it became very apparent to me that Portland, Oregon had more public housing than any other city in the United States during the 1940s, more than Chicago, more than New York. And I don't think of Portland, Oregon as being a hub of public housing today, and I'm a housing advocate and care about affordable housing, and I was really curious and ended up moving here. Um, Karen Gibson 
tempted me to come to Portland when I met her in Detroit to do research. Mm-hmm. And I found out that not only did we have the largest public housing development ever built in the United States, which is Vanport, we also had a number of other public housing developments built in city limits. So the interesting thing about Vanport is it's actually between Vancouver and Portland. It's between the two cities, so it wasn't in city boundaries at the time. And had it been an incorporated city, which it was not, it would have been the second largest city in Oregon. So it had a peak population of 40,000 people. And these people came from all different classes, all different ethnic groups, to fight the war on the home front by joining the defense industries. You had to be in a defense industry. Many of them are associated with Kaiser shipyards. Mm -hmm. And they moved into a planned city. This is before suburbs, so we didn't have a lot of planned cities. And they needed daycares. There was a theater built for them. There were schools. This was, they had a library. It was a city that had everything inclusive in it, and yet it was in a bowl. So if you were living there, you would look around and you would see all of this dirt infrastructure that would keep the slew water out of the city itself. So it was a floodplain from the beginning. So it was it was a purpose-built for the war effort, and right. uh, it essentially was dug out of the earth uh, in order to, what, make it uh, more uh, accessible to the shipyards? It was prime location for the shipyards as far as transportation access to the work environment. Uh-huh. In World War One, we had um, immense amounts of turnover because when men were rec- recruited to work in the war industry, they, there wasn't housing for their families. Portland was so overcrowded that people were sleeping on pool tables and sleeping in shifts on beds. Houses were carved up, and entire families were living in bedrooms. There, in order to retain the amount of workers that were necessary, housing had to be built. Wow! So, so this this city uh, is is built, and the 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 call goes out for uh, for people to to live there and 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 work in the primarily in the shipping industry. Um, Vanport then becomes one of Oregon's most diverse cities uh, in a state um, that is historically and intentionally diverse. not diverse. <laughs> well, of the 40,000 individuals in Vanport, 6,000 were blacks. We also had a large number of indigenous people who moved in. Hmm. I'm trying to get the numbers, but it looks like over half of the able-bodied workers leave the reservations in Oregon and across the country. Many of them are enlisted in the military, but a large percentage of women come and work in the shipyards are trained and then also brought to Vanport. And then after the war is complete and the jobs dry up, we have Japanese are returning back to their city to find their communities been eradicated. Mm-hmm. Their homes, you know, were taken away from them. They move in and we have returning GIs also moving in into family housing to go to Vanport College, which is now Portland State University. So within the short, brief period of the city, there's a complete turnover of population, of new people coming in in a different environment. And the people who get left behind after the war are people of color and households headed by women. Women were not able to sign leases in the market they were discriminated against, as were blacks, as were Japanese, and mm-hmm. as were Native Americans. So 
since the federal government had different rules about discrimination, we ended up with a different population living in there, which is why the flood impacted disenfranchised groups more explicitly. Well, that's that's interesting that that uh, certainly it was diverse during the war effort, but the the fact that because of discrimination elsewhere, Vanport becomes uh, a, a, a place where people can go that otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to to find housing. You've you've done a, a, a good job of kind of painting the, the picture of of Vanport with, you know, the theater and, and schools. Uh, I mean, the library there, I mean, they had a library, and the, I guess they had foot patrolmen police, and if you had a late library book, the guy who's doing his beat would be able to take one of your books and return it to the library. This was a community <laughs> that had food opportunities, cafeterias. 20, they had opportunities to go to shipyards and use the 24-7 daycare centers. A lot of the black community is blessed to St. Martin. Child care was important. You have to remember half of the city was children. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, it seems, I mean, it seems idyllic. It's uh, a planned community, and it, part of that plan is taking care of the community. Yeah, if you read, um, like, feminist thinkers like Dolores Hayden, it is described as a utopia for women. So you have scholars looking at it as that, and you also have scholars looking at it as a place that really shows racial injustice. So it depends on what hat you're wearing on what day, what the city and who, what it represents yeah. to different people. And, you know, my work had been on God's Lake Courts, which was the eighth largest housing project ever built that had a population of 5,000 African Americans and was the only housing project in Portland that limits that allowed blacks. So the Vanport Plate working project during COVID said that they needed some help doing some research because a lot of the archives were closed. I'd had a lot of research on Vanport just on the shelf mm. because when I was doing my research, it was accessible to me. And that's how I tied up with this group where usually I wouldn't have been able to give it the tender loving care that this project <laughs> needs. <laughs> nice. Uh, this is Andy Lindbergh, and uh, I'm speaking with Tanya March about the history of Vanport, 73 years after the historic flood that wiped it off the map. So let's let's talk about that flood. What what happens in 1948, and, and what are the impacts? So having really tried to pull back on this project and really study the 1948 flood in its entirety, this is a flood that went along a 2,600-mile-long like river and impacted communities and treaties with Canada. There's, I'm unpacking a lot of history of how this flood has been used mm -hmm. to build dams and change the environment. And the pictures of the victims of the flood, their experiences was a driving force in a lot of changes to the environment. There wasn't enough warning. There were drills teaching people how to evacuate and practicing evacuation at Vanport. Sometimes I see pictures that are purported to be of the flood, Memorial Day, um, Mm -hmm. 1948, and they're actually of some of these drills. Hmm. But this community, when your house got destroyed, these were temporary houses, so they're not fixed to the foundation. So people's homes picked up like boats and went down the river through the breaks. There was four breaks. Um, and what happened first was the sloughs were filling up with water. People could see that. People went out to look at it. 
it's a blessing that it happened on a holiday because more people were out and about viewing the city and parents were home with the kids. I cannot imagine what would have happened had this happened on a work day when there wouldn't have been as many people to help get people out of the community. Denver Avenue just bottlenecked, and then within 24 hours, the Denver Avenue, too, also had a break. So, so it was just devastating. There wasn't anything to come back to. It's not like a flood in some parts of the country where the houses, when the water recedes, that you can go in and get your stuff. These houses just picked up and floated away. So the, so the city was effectively gone after the flood. It was completely eradicated. Wow. It's in Delta Park. When you go to the Walmart, there's actually a historic marker right where they keep the shopping carts. But because it's placed behind the shopping carts, people don't realize that those are actually pictures of the landscape where the Walmart Center is. So oh, there's okay. a lot of history accessible, but we have to not only make it accessible, but noticeable. And that's what Project's going to do. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about the... the is it a place-marking project, place-making project? We're making historic markers. Oh, okay, excellent. So, <laughs> so it's... It's marking the project. The intent is not for this, which is wonderful. I have a lot of other parts on my plate. This is not <laughs> going to be a permanent organization. Okay. There's an amazing organization that exists, the Van Port Mosaic Project, that is collecting oral histories and pieces of narratives of individuals. This is, this is, there's so much to tell and so many ways to tell it that you know, my hope is that that group and other groups are, you know, the Vanport interest and mm-hmm. study of will continue. But the effort that I'm working on is just to put some historic markers at the site. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your process and 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 research uh, for for making the 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 markings for the for the places uh you you spoke with some of the survivors and residents of the guilds lake courts what what was your experience like beneficial about the interviews of guilds lake courts that i did over a decade ago um i also had reunions for them is that people who lived in vanport after the flood were put in trailer homes at guilds lake so i actually Mm. interviewed people from vanport about their experience after the flood living in those trailer homes. So I've met elders and talked to people from there. And if you were African-American, if you could only live between the two, sometimes people moved between the two housing developments. And one of the things that I've been able to bring to people is pictures of homes and families, and we had reunions. And I think that's another amazing thing that other groups have done too, is bringing people together. It's not just taking one person's story and putting it on a piece of paper and putting it on a website. It's bringing people together so that it's like a reunion. They can meet people. When your house is destroyed and you're a child, you don't have the phone number of those people. You didn't even have a phone. Hmm. So sometimes I see people reunite that haven't seen each other in 70 years. Wow. So I'm I'm going to challenge you as a historian a little bit. Mm-hmm. I I know that the the historians in in my life are are often um, they they like to uh, to to keep their their focus on on history. Um, but I'm I'm wondering. With I guess that's why I have a PhD in urban studies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm, wondering, I'm an advocate, so I, I'm not okay. your, your number one historian. I'm afraid. <laughs> Well, good. Then let's let's jump in. I I feel like there's there's maybe some uh, insights or 
or lessons for for us given the 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 diversity in Vanport and the the way that uh, because of the flood uh, things for Vanport residences changed very quickly and they were facing uh, suddenly the systems in the rest of of Portland that were keeping right. them from the housing. Yes, there was a redlining. So, so how are are there any parallels, any connections to to what the what the people of Vanport were were facing uh, after the flood as they tried to reestablish their lives, and and the Portland housing uh, challenges of today. Yes, um, so I touched on this a bit in an interview I did in 2014. I looked it up. <laughs> um, so I was interviewed by the Portland Mercury, and it was a cover page story, just to show that I've really been, even though I don't always focus on Vanport, I have <laughs> focused on Vanport for a long time. <laughs> All right. And um, the headline was, was an act of God or racism. Hmm. You know, lost city of Vanport, how flood and racism changed Portland. I think that goes straight to what you're saying, mm-hmm. um, because we're going to have limited time. You know, I wanted to hand right. out other ways people could get information. Thank you. So what I have noticed is when you focus on the flood, you're focusing on an act of God, an act of nature. You know, if I was an insurance agent, I'd be like, oh, it's an act of God. It happened. And when I looked at God's Lake, it's clearly an act of racism that against um, blacks in Portland in particular because they started building around that housing. Here you displace the victims of the flood. They're moved to another housing project, and then you eradicate that one. So it's it, you're not providing long-term housing. In fact, people had to pay to live in the trailers. And there's amazing pictures. I saw one recently on a mural that's going up in the Vanport building that shows some of the protest signs at City Hall. You know, these some of these individuals fought in the war. They've lost everything, right? Mm-hmm. Because when they lost all their possessions as well. And then they're being charged to live in what are basically FEMA trailers that are just leftover surplus trailers. And they're being charged almost as much as individuals who are living in housing units in public housing at the time. And I've got some families who were moved around, families of color, they were moved around to 12 different housing projects in their lifetime. You know, just bumped through the system as vacancies became available. And I know that as a mom, being moved around that much means you're moving a kid around to schools a lot, and that can really have long-term consequences. You know, having where you're educated going to multiple schools is not a good way to set up a strong foundation for college and yeah. other entry points. Uh, this is Andy. We're speaking with uh, Tanya March about uh, Vanport, uh, 73 years after the historic flood. We're talking a little bit about maybe some of the parallels or or lessons that we might uh, learn what how can how can we as as a as a community uh, take the observations the the stories of of how the people of Vanport were treated how can we incorporate that into our thinking about uh, making housing more open and uh, inclusive and accessible now I think we really need to look at affordable housing, and that word is used so loosely now in the Mm -hmm. vernacular. I mean, I'm talking of housing that minimum wage earners can afford. 
not, you know, based on the economics of a particular cohort where, you know, you have enough affluency that it brings that number to an unattainable for work, workers. And, you know, obviously discrimination still happens. There's, um, there's a great tour called It's Been a Bumpy Ride. Mm. And history, if we don't learn it, you know, they always say it repeats itself. And <laughs> I think it's really that it has it kind of rhymes with itself <laughs> and huh. we need to like not look and vilify um, public housing the way that it's been vilified because yeah. it actually discrimination is when a public agency is doing it, it's going to be under the microscope more than if it's being done by private corporations and private investors. Well, that's interesting. And it, it makes me wonder what had the flood not happened, you know, what the, what the Vanport story might have right. been. There are guides like Tenants Union and uh, the Urban League and the NAACP was attending the Housing Authority of Portland meetings. And after there was discussions about race in which the mayor of Portland and either others were brought into a big community meeting, the Housing Authority of Portland decided that their meetings were no longer public. So not being able to have a voice in your neighborhood, not being able to have a voice in the future really changed the outcome because those groups were looking at possibly making Vanport a permanent community. There was also the section, the Gona Street section of Gilds Lake was on land that was owned by the housing authority. So 80 acres of 300 acres was owned, and that was another opportunity. So there were opportunities to have lasting housing, and that didn't happen. And part of it was by just simply making the meetings inaccessible. Hmm. Wow. Thank you. Uh, Urban historian Tanya March, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Thanks to Tanya for joining The Local, and thanks to lead writer for today's show, Joey McClone. Also, thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow.